0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Eldon Scott, and he is president of Urban Space, which is the New York branch of a fascinating company that began life in London, England. If you have gone to any of the new and very hip food courts around New York City, I'm partial to the one on Vanderbilt and 46, but they're all over Manhattan. You will have experienced some of uh, Urban Space's work. They are just really, really good at totally recreating the concept of a food court. You know, when I think of food courts, I think of the terrible mall-based, really awful chain foods Uh, What they do is they go out and find the most interesting chefs, entrepreneurs, uh, hip places in Brooklyn, and they bring them to Manhattan as uh, food stalls. And and some of them are just—the food is fantastic. The vibe and the energy in these places are just amazing. I strongly suggest that if you're anywhere near New York City and have an opportunity to try one of these places, you really like it. They also do all of the holiday— uh, sales, um, temporary spaces that pop up in places like Bryant Park and Grand Central Station. Uh, again, no chains, just unique one-off merchants and entrepreneurs and designers. Really, really interesting thing. If you are at all interested in food and how various chefs become popular uh, uh, and about the future of how food is going to be served in places like conference facilities, malls, etc., cetera, then this is something you actually absolutely have to listen to. With no further ado, my conversation with Eldon Scott. My special guest this week is Eldon Scott. He is the president and CEO of Urban Space, a unique real estate, dining, and retail establishment uh, that given how difficult retail has been these days, I thought it would be nice to bring someone in who has achieved a high degree of success in retailing and Uh, uh Eldon went to undergraduate at Yale University. He then moved on to the London School of Economics uh, before joining Urban Space in London. The London Urban Space was founded uh, in 1970 by Eric Reynolds, uh, where it has since developed more than 50 sites focusing on artisanal and casual food and unique holiday fairs. In 1993, Eldon left London uh, for New York City, where he opened Urban Space, uh, the first one in America, focusing on the holiday fair in Grand Central. Now, Urban Space has a number of locations in New York, uh, the Vanderbilt Market, 570 Lex, Times Square, Madison Square, uh, Broadway Bites, the Garment District. They also run a number of different holiday fairs, Grand Central Station, Bryan Park, Union Square, Columbus Circle. And the company is about to take this unique business model national. Eldon Scott, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So so I hope I did that justice in explaining sort of what, what uh, urban space is. It's a fairly unique model Before we get into the details of it, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, You mentioned you're a boarding school kid. You end up going to Yale and then London School of Economics. What led you to urban space in London uh, after you got out of uh,
1: LSE? You know, I've always lived in residential uh, types of communities through boarding school and then at at Yale. And, you know, these, these great colleges have wonderful dining halls. And one of the hearts of universities are these dining halls. So I've always been interested in this idea of community and meeting other people around food and and communal seating as well. So I think there's a little bit of inspiration from those experiences that I took with, with me to London.
0: So did you go straight to Urban Space out of uh, London School of Economics, or
1: were there any intervening no. work? Um, my background is urban planning and real estate. Mm-hmm. So I worked in the Koch administration in the uh, Department of City Planning for a while. It's my mm-hmm. first job, New Haven, New York City, urban planning. Then LSE studied urban planning and economics, and then I worked for Savills, which is a property company in London. Mm-hmm. So I had some traditional real estate and planning background. So then, how did you
0: stumble onto urban space?
1: Well, you know, like a lot of other young people in London, I was going up to Camden Lock on the weekends, which mm-hmm. is a great place if you haven't been there. It's it's north side of London and it's a fantastic, very busy spot. And I was talking to my professor from LSE one day, and I was like. I love this place. Came to London. Oh, I got to meet Eric Reynolds. He's a friend of mine. So I I met Eric, and shortly thereafter I left Savills and started working with him at, at Urban Space. So he set up Urban Space in the UK in 1970.
0: When when this was first brought to the fore, there did they have to raise capital, or did it just sort of start small and? and go from there.
1: It started small and went from there. Having said that, there were a couple of investors that Eric brought in early on with Camden Lock. I mean, Camden grew to become the 34th biggest visitor destination in London, and was a real phenomenon at the time. Mm -hmm. Because you have to remember, in the 70s, there were trading laws you couldn't open on Sundays. Right. Um, But you could open markets on Sundays. So it was one of the first, if not the first, large private market to open in London. Um, at that time. And it just really drew and got a lot of the youth culture coming down. So
0: that was a regulatory loophole. You couldn't have regular retail open, but an open-air marketplace was allowed to run?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And same question in the United States. You come here in 1993 with the intention of setting up urban space New York. Did you have to raise capital? Or by that time, was there enough capital from London? It was. We already easy. had enough capital
1: by that time to, mm-hmm. to get going. So we just applied the knowledge, experience we had. I was wanting to bring it to New York for a long time because I was you know, living in London, traveling to a lot of European capitals, and there was such a great market culture in Europe that I knew there was something that would be great in the United States. So I wanted to bring it back. So
0: I have been writing about and talking about the death of retail for, it seems like, a decade, if not longer... And part of retail has to do with the the dining experience, the traditional mall in America. It's a handful of chains, it's a handful of well known, nothing unique, nothing special. Are we at the edge of the death of the food court? Is that going the way of the dodo bird?
1: I don't think we're at the it's the death of the food court. I think that the food hall is a, a variation on an old theme and it's it's a new segment, if you will. But I think there's still a lot of other concepts which are going to you know, continue to thrive as well. There's so, going to be more food options, not less.
0: So the food court might be replaced with a food hall or something a little more hip or a little more innovative. Is, yeah. that, is that
1: a fair assessment? The main difference really is that the food hall has, generally speaking, more local and chef-driven concepts. So let's talk about that
0: a little bit. I, I go to the one on Vanderbilt all the time. I'm a huge fan of... Uh, Delaney Chicken—it's the greatest chicken sandwich I've ever had. Uh, Mister Bing is just absolutely unique and and um, just a favorite. And then there's a shop called Dough, which does the biggest donuts I've ever seen in my life, and they're <laughs> crazy delicious. Um, as are everything I've tasted. This is a completely different approach to feeding people. It's not like in New York you walk into a deli and there's 97 different serving stations and you can get anything from mediocre pizza to whatever. This is the opposite of that. This is very specific artisanal
1: foods. Yeah, it's it's a bottom-up um, business model versus a, a top-down business model. So instead of a large restaurant company that's got a you know senior management and they're planning out what the menus are going to be, we're really we're truly market operators so we go to the market and we try to find out what the coolest concepts are and we bring them into one facility and, you know markets are 2000 years old and people have uh, have had that kind of experience where you can match consumers and vendors in a central place and the central place is the market operator and that's what we are so one analogy we give is it's a little bit like an artificial reef so if you've ever been snorkeling mm-hmm. you go out you find a good area you drop down a bunch of old tires and old cinder blocks. But the real color are the fish that are coming. So it's not the architecture. It's not, it's not all the planning per se. It's just bringing together market forces. It's bringing together the best of other businesses and putting them together.
0: I read an interesting report recently from Cushman and Wakefield. They pointed out New York City has 25 or so active permanent food halls with another dozen or so plans, but nationwide they think the number of these food halls will hit 300? Is that is that a real number? 300 food halls around the country?
1: It's funny, I was talking to the guys at Cushman uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we actually think it's probably much higher than that. Really? Uh, because not all the things that are in the pipeline are even being discussed. Um, I think there's going to be too much of it. There's going to probably be some overbuilding. In there. Well, but
0: that happens in every every yep. hot new trend. Eventually,
1: yep. reaches saturation, and then it's too much for.
0: And that that's true whether we're talking about fried chicken sandwiches or man yep. buns. At a certain point, it just it just goes too far. So we mentioned Delaney Chicken and some of some of my other favorites. I have to ask you, how do you source vendors? Every you just opened up one on Lexington Avenue five seventy. Where Mr. K's used to be, I know that restaurant for a million years, and it's just a completely different set of hip, funky restaurants. How do you guys consistently find such interesting vendors uh,
1: to sell such unique food? We have a we have a little bit of an advantage because we have our own farm league set up, Mm -hmm. so we have these pop up markets that we've been doing for years all around the city. So we're in Madison Square, we're in we're in Bryant Park, Union Square. And this is around the holidays, usually last there, couple of there's, months. There's two open right now, um, Madison Square and uh, Herald Square. Mm-hmm. They're food-only markets. So what we do is we bring people in and we try them out, because you know you can have great food, you can be a great operator, you can be a super highly followed chef, but we're looking for people that are not just don't just have a great following; they're also really good operators. Mm-hmm. You can also be a great chef and not how to know how to cook in volume there's a big leap it takes to go from having a tasty item to being able to serve a thousand of those items pretty quickly
0: and and I will tell listeners if you walk over to the Vanderbilt one that's on 46th Street in Vanderbilt at 5 to 12 you can walk in and walk into any vendor and get whatever you want at 5 after 12 there's it's just flooded with people especially millennials and young people um, and then after 2:30 again it it empties out Uh, That's got to be a challenge to manage that sort of crush for any chef or restaurant um, operator.
1: Yeah, and we kind of partner with the chefs in the space to help give them the infrastructure that they need. Sometimes they'd like more infrastructure, more storage, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, But the ones that figure it out do really well. And luckily, not too many don't. But I think that they kind of learn from each other. So they'll look down the aisle and they say, hey, why is that guy cranking it? Why is his line moving? And they'll start to learn. But having said that, it's it, there's a big skill jump from being a good chef to really producing quality and volume. So
0: you you talked about um, how trendy a lot of this is. I think your vendors are the most on-trend foods in town. Not surprised that you the new place has uh, a ramen uh, specialist. There's a, a ton of niche sort of foods. It's not just oh, I'm going to open a Chinese food. Uh, Mr. Bing is a perfect example. It's a very specific niche. So my question is, how intense is the competition for people, um, for chefs and others who want into the next urban space market, and how do you make that that decision, this person is good, this person um, may not be an excellent
1: fit? It's competitive, because they're great locations, and the chefs want to be in, in those locations. So what we do is we have a a separate department that does leasing Mm -hmm. and we're looking at sales data from our other markets our pop-up markets and if we see something that looks like it's doing really well we let the public decide we Mm -hmm. let them tell us we should read social media and all that kind of stuff and then all the senior people will go to that restaurant and we'll see what we like about the food about the menu about the environment about the service and we'll make sure that there's a whole list of things we'll look at to make sure it's the best vendor in that sector
0: so you mentioned you track sales and stuff. What metrics do you look at to determine if a given space is meeting your expectations or if a ver- given vendor is being successful?
1: You know, there's a lot of different metrics you can look at. At the end of the day, it's sales, mm-hmm. sales volume.
0: Well, what other metrics would you even consider? Uh, obviously, volume is um,
1: important, but is it consistent volume? You could. I've seen some days... Well, it's different day parts, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, some vendors are going to do better at lunch, some are going to do better after work, you know, if we, we want to have a few things that will work for, for breakfast, so we will put someone in with a lower sales volume just because it's filling a niche that we need. So there's it's it's science and art, it's it's all mixed together. It's a mix. And I
0: first became familiar with the concept of a food hall years ago when Italy opened up. Um and I have my favorite Italian places, so I, I'm probably not the ideal person to talk to about Italy because I have my other favorite pasta places and favorite um, pizza places. But what did
1: you think of when you saw a concept like Eataly uh, come into play? It's a great model. It's essentially a more top-down model. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some sub-tenants in there, but it's primarily uh, more of a planned, uh, you know, food concept with stations. Um, it's interesting because we had our first all food pop up market at Madison Square outside of the first Italy. Mm-hmm. and I remember at that time people saying, "Yeah, it's really great," but you know, out, outside is an actual market, from the perspective of individual vendors and entrepreneurs, you know, you're not necessarily going to meet the entrepreneur at uh, in Italy, but you're very well going to meet the entrepreneur or the chef at one of the food halls of one of the food markets. I,
0: I one one day my wife had heard me talk about Mister Bing for forever and she was here for a show, it was four in the afternoon, so I said, hey, it's not crowded, let's walk over there and grab a Mr. Bing. And the person who built it was there, we had a whole conversation. Yeah, I went to school in China and I studied and we always loved this street vendor and there was nothing like it here in the States and this worked out perfectly, which leads to a question, given that there are so many different restaurants in New York, um, can these little pop-ups compete with the restaurant? Uh, do they have the ability to go toe-to-toe with someone who's there, who's going to seat people? Or is this a totally different market?
1: I mean, obviously there's some crossover, but it's a different market. We're not doing full service. Uh, if you want to have a great business lunch with five people and you want to have a reservation and waiter service, you're probably not going to go to a food hall. Right. But if you're okay with a little more bustling environment for a business lunch, which sometimes people are, then- yeah, you know, That's where you might want to go.
0: And do you think of urban space as a, a real estate play, or is it a restaurant play?
1: Yeah, everyone asks us that. Uh, it's a little bit both. We're really a real estate company from the perspective mm-hmm. that we acquire property and we sublease property, but we also act like a, an F&B brand. So right. we also see ourselves as more of a brand than most real estate companies would.
0: I was trying to explain urban space to a friend who's not from New York, but understands we work, and I said it's we work for food, and yeah, and they kind of right. got that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the holiday fairs because that's how I first discovered um, who you folks were, who Urban Space was. Um, Grand Central Station has a giant holiday fair every holiday season. Uh, Bryan Park, you guys take over the park. Union Square Holiday Market, Columbus Square Holiday Market. For many years, every holiday, I got my wife a gift from Deborah Armstrong, who is an artisan and jewelry designer. How did the concept of these pop-up temporary holiday fairs come about?
1: Well, I mean, I, I came back from London, and I was I was used to going to these Chris Kindle's markets, and which are throughout Europe, mm-hmm. and we didn't really have a strong tradition of those in the states. Uh, this was, gosh, I don't know, in ninety late 90s Mm -hmm. um so I first approached uh Grand Central Terminal and they just renovated the uh, main waiting room this is going back a lot of years and they said well it may may not work but give it a shot so we did you
0: wasn't like years of haggling and negotiating it was just you have this empty space I'd like to use it for a holiday fair it'll generate revenue for for the station Mm -hmm. how does that sound and
1: that oh okay sure it was a test at first, you know. Later on, there was a lot more uh, negotiating, and haggling.
0: You're aware that that is not the usual way stuff gets done in in New York City.
1: Well, you know, there there weren't a lot of great users of public spaces back in the '90s. Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't a lot as many good concepts. There's a lot more great concepts. There's a lot more great street food today. Mm-hmm. There wasn't back then, so people were looking for things like this. And Grand Central Station was was at full. The renovation
0: finished. Not that long ago, less than a ten years ago, the full the
1: full renovation
0: the the, the yeah. main uh, the main part of that. This was just the south waiting room. Is that this was the, is the that waiting right?
1: room? And then we moved it shortly thereafter to an outdoor uh, situation at Union Square. Mm-hmm. So and that was a little bit larger. And
0: so when I lived on Lexington Avenue, we would have a street fair every year, and it was very quickly became boring and repetitive. It was the same junk tube socks, and just regular commercial stuff. Why have the street fairs failed where your holiday fairs seem to be very successful and thrive every year?
1: It's about the quality of the product and the curation of the product. So Mm -hmm. a lot of what we do as the operator is curation Mm -hmm. and storytelling. Because we're trying to find vendors that are entrepreneurs from New York or sometimes beyond New York Mm -hmm. and have a real story and a real craft or something to bring to the consumer. So let's talk about the numbers behind that. I read somewhere about 75%
0: of the vendors are local from either New York or the surrounding areas, and 25% are international. Is that more or less accurate?
1: Something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we've had a, a guy forever who came from uh, comes from Colorado once a year. He makes candles, loads up his van, comes to New York. So New York's known as a place at the holidays where you can sell products. Mm-hmm. And then you.
0: I also read that you have an unusually high percentage of women and minority vendors. Eighty-five percent is that right? That's a huge number.
1: Yeah, I think that's just reflective of the entrepreneurial community and getting access to you know great real estate so they can sell. Mm-hmm. So that's it's an outcome of what's out there in the marketplace.
0: And let me give you a, a quote of yours and get a comment because I, I I love this perspective. Most retail in America is top-down, where you have national chains that have buyers who decide what fashions are and distribute down to stores. Our model is the opposite. We're dealing almost exclusively with small, independent businesses, not national chains. Is that the difference between a marketplace and a regular
1: sort of retailer? Yeah, I mean, that's what we offer over going to a, a national store, uh, and the way our buying gets done. Obviously, we're curating, we're meeting, we're looking at product. But at the end of the day, we're looking at their uh, their sales and their behavior and how the, the consumer uh, likes their product, and that's how we release or change for the next year. So we're really listening to the marketplace. It's
0: a market. What's, what's the
1: turnover like? How many people are repeat vendors and, and how many people are fresh faces? We have turnover every year, sometimes not because of the product. Sometimes people move on, they get they get larger. Mm-hmm. Um, the Body Shop, which became a major international Huge. chain, sure. um, had a stall at Camden Lock in London in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, she started with a table selling potions. She actually came from the Midlands, but that was her wow. first London outlet. So uh, Saban, which is a pretty big retailer now, started with a with with uh, stalls in some of the markets. So some of them grow out of it. Huh? That's amazing. I mentioned
0: um, your background having worked with the urban space in London. And I read recently that you were looking at Chicago and the West Coast. How big do you think the concept of food halls and gift fairs can get
1: nationally? Where can this go? Certainly can go further. How much, I don't have the answer to. There's going to be a lot of it coming Mm because we're not the only ones going to Chicago, going to other cities. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see. Who who are your competitors? Oh, you know, anything from... uh, other restaurateurs that are doing multiple-use concepts or landlords who are putting things in their buildings. Mm-hmm. So it's really coming from multiple directions.
0: So there's a building, I want to say it's 38th and Broadway, since you brought this up. And the interesting thing they did with the ground floor is every real estate tenant is uh, a fairly hip new uh, restaurant. I can't say I've ever seen that before. It's a relatively new building. I don't know if you're familiar with that... that uh, area. sure Is that the sort of concept that, that might we might see more of? Are yes. those potential competitors out there? Or Indirectly, is that something that you do?
1: Sure. Um, we, we would not uh, normally just put a, a bunch of retailers on a street like that, because mm-hmm. we're more interested in the community aspect of what a food hall is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the compelling things about food halls. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that the interaction between uh, all the various people all in one yeah. place
1: at one time? You know, they, I think since 2008, at least, people have been talking about local is the new luxury, food is the new fashion, mm-hmm. and everyone, the buzzword is authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been dealing with authenticity since the 1970s when we started this because we were always working with local small businesses. Um, it, for many years, we couldn't, we, we weren't considered a major tenant by landlords because they were looking for nationals with credit. Now everyone's looking for authenticity, so you know the, the the tide has changed.
0: Suddenly, it's inverted. It's it's different than it was. Yeah. So so speaking of the beginning in 1970s, um, the person who founded Urban Space in London in 1970 was Eric Reynolds, who sort of used the catchphrase "lighter, quicker, cheaper." Um, is that still the watchword, and is that how you approach setting up a new space? And does the economy itself make a difference in how you operate?
1: The economy only makes a difference if consumers are buying our product, so mm-hmm. we're not as impacted by interest rates or other fluctuations. We're just, you know, we're interested in our people buying our product.
0: I mean, outside of the Great Recession, when things were horrific, uh, the economy gets better, it gets a little worse.
1: Are you guys fairly recession-proof? Sort of a near depression. In um, in two thousand eight, when things were a little rough, I was hiding under my desk along with everyone else. <laughs> right. And we had a holiday market at Union Square to put on. So uh, you know, we came out and turns out people came out of the woodwork. They wanted to be in the parks, they wanted to be outside, they wanted to be with other people. Mm-hmm. And that's when we first really started to sink in that people were looking for a human experience, like an authentic experience, and our sales were up. So from Your that sales pers-
0: were up in two thousand and eight? Yes. That's astonishing.
1: But we weren't selling $500 items, we're selling $10, 20 $30 items. Mm-hmm. So the thought process is
0: they're staying away from expensive stores and going to the fairs where they can still find something a little unique and interesting, but much more reasonably
1: priced. And looking for experience and connection. And I think that's one of the things that we're able to offer.
0: Very, very different than a retail store experience is when you're actually interacting with not just a vendor... But the entrepreneur who may be the designer or the builder of whatever that particular um, goodie is that's being sold.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's you know, a little bit of where the lighter, quicker, cheaper comes from. Is that you know we're setting up the rough space, um, but we're looking to the the vendor to really brand themselves within the parameters of what we give them. So that's you know e- people ask us how you can do these things in about four or five days. That's how long it takes us to put these up, right. and it's because it's you know many hands to make small work. Right. So
0: a previous guest was Dan Biederman. He was the person who helped design Bryan Square Park and a num- number of other public-private projects. And and one of the things that stood out from that conversation was he he felt programming was the key to making a space successful, that you had to bring people in, you had to give them something to do. And it reminds me a little bit of what you're describing, which is the community space, the interaction, the experience, not just buying a sandwich or buying a widget, but the whole overall experience. Is that a fair statement?
1: Sure, I mean, what what Dan did with Bryant Park was amazing from where that started you know, 25, 30 years ago.
0: Right, for people who may not be familiar, Bryant Park was is right west of the New York Public Library. It was a den, den of iniquity, with drug sales and muggings and just terrible. And it's now one of the great jewels of, of Manhattan.
1: It really is. And it's actually become a great food area as well. Um, so I think that making public spaces better is very clearly adds to value in, in what's happening around those spaces. So I think programming is, is part of that. So
0: one of the questions I, I wanted to get to before um, had to do with um, in Paris and in London I've seen – the um the gift fairs as a permanent not just a pop-up um location and i read also tokyo there are permanent uh, holiday fairs not temporary holiday fairs is that sort of experience is it can that work in new york and can that work in the united states or is that a little more continental than the american palette might uh, well be i ready mean, for?
1: we have for example camden lock which was an urban space project is a year-round uh, marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's hard to set those things up because to get the density in an urban center right. to do that at a real estate value that makes sense, I haven't seen it very often. So that's one of the reasons why we haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Do
0: Any plans on trying that in, in the US or is that really
1: best left to the Europeans? I think it's it's not where the trend is right now.
0: Well, where is the trend? What what There's... do you see as the next uh, offshoot? It's all food.
1: For us, it's it's food. Mm-hmm. It's primarily food. W-
0: why is that? Is food the new entertainment? Is that a... Uh...
1: It, because it's, it's something that people need every day, mm-hmm. and it's a, a, a way to bring people together in a communal experience, and it's a way to, to connect really creative young businesses um, with consumers in a way that's more exciting than things that they've had in the past.
0: So I have to ask you about urban space itself. Um, when you started in 93 in New York, how many people were working with you here in, in, in the United States? Oh, year one was just a couple people. Right. And what have you expanded to? How many people are in urban space today? Uh, we're probably
1: 25, 30 in the head office. Mm-hmm. So and,
0: and what's the relationship with the original London office? Is that still ongoing?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. They're, they're um, partners. Eric serves on our board and uh, has an interest in our company, so we, we talk a lot about trends that are happening in London, trends that are happening in New York, and in you know compare notes. So, which we re- you know I know how fashion trends move, Paris,
0: Milan, New York, and then eventually makes its way west. What direction are food trends g- going? I, I I was just in the West Loop of Chicago. And I was struck by how much it reminded me of Brooklyn, um, yeah. not what I expected to see. And um, and for people who may not be familiar with that part of Chicago, this was uh, uh, rail tracks and it was a die for a long time, until I want to say sometime in the mid '90s, maybe it was 1990. Oprah Winfrey set up um, Harpo Studios there, which is her production company, and that started a renaissance there. And now it's just full blown. It reminds me of Hudson Yards um, here in New York. It's just not cranes everywhere, lots and lots of buildings. There's a big Google office there. What direction do food trends move? Are, are you seeing this go from it's Europe all, to here or vice versa? It's or? All,
1: all directions. Is kind of, it's kind of crazy. I think that it's something that's bubbling up um, globally. Mm-hmm. You know, I was speaking with um, uh, the head of the World Food Street Street Food Congress just last week, and we think we have a lot of food halls going on here. Well, in 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 Asia and in Singapore, right. it's it's com- much beyond what we have here, and this is something that that is, it is global,
0: and that's really more of a cultural tradition there. Food stalls and that sort of public communal eating experience seems to be have a much longer history than we have in the United States.
1: It it does, but you you still have. Uh, I'd say more chef driven concepts even within those contexts kind mm-hmm. of growing up uh, out of out of the uh, of those street markets really that that that's quite
0: fascinating. We have been speaking with Eldon Scott of Urban Space. Be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on bloombergview.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Eldon, thank you so much for doing this. I am a huge fan of what you guys do. And one day I was online at Delaney Chicken and looking around and I said, somebody has to be behind this. This sort of thing doesn't just spring up fully developed on its own. And I started doing a little bit of research and eventually reached out to Urban Space. And and here we are. I have to ask you a couple of questions about your career because a lot of the folks I speak to have followed a very specific career path. They went to college. They went for an MBA. They got a job at a big firm. And then they went to a boutique, and then they launched their own shop. There's a fairly clear path. I think what you did is fairly unique. There aren't all that many holiday fair slash food halls around, so there can't be that many businesses doing this, and therefore there can't be that many people with your career path. When when you first accepted the gig. Did you realize you were taking such a non-traditional career path in in real estate and urban planning?
1: I was young enough, so I didn't realize uh, what career I was giving up. I just thought it was exciting and I wanted to to do it. And my background was really more urban planning, architecture with some real estate. So to me, it was a no-brainer to get involved with Camden Lock, which was, was a very exciting place to be.
0: And what was the business like in London? I know that over the 40-so years since the launch, they've done 50 pretty substantial projects. When you joined, were they a thriving, successful company? Uh, The U.K. have gone through a series of economic expansions and ran into some trouble in the 70s. They got a little better in the 80s. Um, and then the '90s, everybody exploded. What was it like back then? Was it uh, any bit of an issue? You joined them when late '80s? Is that right?
1: Uh, no, the early '90s. Oh, late, okay. Late, no, I guess it was the late '80s. I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember. Yeah, it was like 80s, eighty nine. '89. No, it was a it was a thriving business. It was it was, you know, if you've ever been to London, you went to Camden Camden Lock, especially back then. It was you know even more energetic back then. Mm-hmm. So it was an exciting place to be, and I really got a kind of traditional apprenticeship uh, in, in, in a business. So, you know, I was out there collecting 20-pound notes from vendors, moving stalls around, you know, doing the business from the ground up.
0: Mm-hmm. So this was really a hands-on sort of uh, career from, from from the start.
1: It was hands-on, and, you know, what you gain is experience. And I think what experience is is seeing patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you see if you do something over and over again is you, you see, well, if you line up the stalls this way, the sales are going to be better if you line them up that way. Mm -hmm. So, we learned our own little rules about retail facing retail. How many stalls can you sustain for a market? How much traffic do you need? And really, it was just a body of experience that I gained by doing markets now for 35 years.
0: So, in other words, you're just hit or miss trying a bunch of things and then iterating with each subsequent um, fair to say, here's what we learned with the last one. And
1: slowly but surely. It just gets more and more robust. You you learn. That's why it was like an apprenticeship. You learn almost like a craftsperson learns their trade, mm-hmm. and you start to understand what the internal rules are of that business, and that's what we, we learned about.
0: A- any really unique um, experiences stand out? Anything that was, well, didn't expect that to happen?
1: You can say one of the interesting things is the quality of the uh, vendors, both chefs and and craftsman has just skyrocketed. Um, so back when I first started doing this in New York in the '90s and early 2000s, um, look, there were a lot of there were a lot of great vendors and people making food. But sometime around 2008, when the you know the internet and social media was really kicking in, and other potential career paths were looking a little less successful. Um, we suddenly started to see a lot more interesting chefs. You, you know, the, the food truck thing was, was blowing up. Right. People were uh, self-publishing. They were tweeting where they were on a certain corner. And suddenly you had people who might otherwise have been you know, trying to develop software or get a, a job in finance were saying, hey, I, you know, I can make a really interesting brand. I can make a, a, a food business. And that's actually only continued to get stronger because as you've seen things like Shake Shack go public, You've mm-hmm. had more private equity firms jump into the space and more uh, opportunity for young people to, to create a brand and, 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 and roll that out.
0: So you alluded to something I have to ask. How significant to the food halls are social media, Instagram, Twitter? How big are various people's followings? And do they drive traffic to different vendors?
1: Yeah, I think I don't think there's any business that's not touched by social media, and I think that the food hall has certainly grown up. The new version of the food hall has grown up with social media. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of consumers now are you know looking online. Where's where's their food hall? Where's their the most interesting chicken sandwich? And they're finding it online. I read something that
0: certain food companies are changing the packaging of their boxes. So they're more Instagram friendly. It's gone that far. Uh, do we see vendors making dishes pretty, bright, colorful, whatever it is, so that they're more susceptible to a quick snap and either a tweet or?
1: Well, you know, fast casual is by nature very Instagrammable. Mm-hmm. So why if, why is that? Because you, you you get. You get a plate. You can take a shot on your table. Mm-hmm. You've got colors. You've got different food. And if it, if there's a story behind that, and it's not uh, just a national chain sandwich, um, that's something that can be inherent in that in that Instagram or in that Facebook. So you know, people love. I think food is one of the most highly Instagrammed items. Yeah, no doubt about
0: it. So you mentioned earlier narrative. Um, how significant is the narrative process to? different food vendors, and and different holiday fair uh, craftsmen as well. Uh, we think it's it's a huge part of it. Really? Like we think In, explain that. that. That's kind of fascinating.
1: Well, you know, you're going to a, a market or a place like this to feel like you're experiencing something that's part of the city or part of that community. So even if you don't know all the details of each of these stories, you get a, a sense that there are Real people here with real-life stories that have brought this product to, to you.
0: And these aren't just corporate drones working, flipping burgers. These are
1: real chefs and real craftspeople. Well, are- the, the control, the, the main control decisions are very localized. So mm-hmm. it's that entrepreneur has decided they're going to sell you know, green sandals, or whatever they decide mm-hmm. to sell. We're not deciding that. So it really, I think that a consumer senses that. They're not being sold something from on high. This is the result of many individuals making many decisions.
0: Quite interesting.
1: I think that for us, what we really look for is to create a sense of community. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we do that uh, uh, by bringing uh, real live entrepreneurs together and real consumers. And that community and authenticity is inherent in bringing those communities together in a great space.
0: Makes a lot of sense to me. So let me jump to my favorite questions. These are what I ask all of our guests. Um, Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background.
1: That I'm an urban planner? Is that true? Probably.
0: Huh. Interesting. Who are some of your early mentors?
1: Esoterically, uh, Christopher Alexander, Mm -hmm. who is an interesting uh, architect and planner who wrote a book called A Pattern Language. And he Mm -hmm. really thought about urban spaces as uh, a series of vignettes or patterns that get put together into a language and what's interesting about it is that a lot of his thinking was was picked up by software engineers in Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s so there's an interesting tie-in between what's happening with our perception of urban spaces and what's happening with the idea of frames in in Instagram or Facebook and how things are organized.
0: What other architects, urban planners, real estate developers influenced your approach to thinking about food halls or holiday fairs?
1: Oh, the Rouse Company, you know, what the festival marketplace, which really came around the time of the bicentennial. I was a kid at the time. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Boston, so I'd take the training and I got a, a Faneuil Hall. Mm-hmm. I'd read the Boston Globe real estate section. I got excited about the idea of markets and the idea of, of reusing buildings probably at that time.
0: I've noticed that whenever there's a, a form of um, urban renewal and, and probably the broadest version of this I've seen recently has been in Portland, these buildings that were once used for one specific set of purposes have now been, they were mills, they were mining smelters and things like that. Suddenly they become these very hip retailers and restaurants. Is is that what you're referring to when you talk about repurposing?
1: I think there was an earlier phase of Market repurposing that started in the '70s. -hmm. That you know, the Rouse Company was a leader in that. You, you, Camden Lock started at that time. Mm -hmm. I went to a markets conference a couple years ago at Pike's Place, and actually, Pike's Place was renovated and repurposed in this in the mid '70s. Seattle is that what we're talking about? In Seattle, Mm -hmm. and we had um, Eric from London, the guys from Pike's Place. We had other guy from South Africa. And it was interesting talking to people who had been involved at that time, redeveloping things, and it was very real estate driven. It was like, oh, we got this great warehouse, let's reuse it. Today, it's different. I think that what's happening today is it's very vendor driven. It's about the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. The space is critical, but it's first and foremost about the creativity and the idea of who the vendor is. And we have many more great vendors than we did back then in the 70s. So everybody's favorite question, Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they real estate, food, architecture-related, or not. What what are you reading? What do you like? Um, I I read I read a lot of history. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fascinated with the history of cities. I read a lot about about London, about New York, about other about other great cities and how they developed and the economies of these cities and how the economy is interwoven with um, how these places have been set up. Give us a few book titles. Oh, I love the, you know, the biography of the Wright brothers that mm-hmm. McCullough, McCullough did. Yep. And, you know, if you read the first chapter of that, you know, the Wright brothers uh, were bicycle repair people, but they were working in a vibrant city in the 19th century where you had, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of access to parts and pieces and ideas and a lot of idea of there was no limitation to what they could do. And the individual entrepreneur or inventor could really put things together and, make something new happen. And I think what's really exciting to me working in the sector is that I see that energy. I see it in Brooklyn. Now I see it in Boston and Chicago. There's a lot of young entrepreneurs who feel empowered by the Internet and by the technology to go out and create something.
0: Huh. Quite, quite interesting. So So since you started working in this space, what has changed? How is it different
1: today than it was in the early 90s? What's different today is technology has changed everything. Therefore, the consumer preference or what consumers are looking for has shifted quite a bit. So there's much more interest, which I didn't anticipate would happen, in markets and in entrepreneurs. So that's exciting. <laughs> uh, I would. I, well, that
0: leads me to my next question. Um, what is it that you're most excited about right now beyond uh, technology, which is changing everything?
1: What really drives me and I and a lot of our company is creating uh, great places that uh, are social places. So we're not hopefully always going to be stuck in our car or our home you know, looking at our computers that we can create great places where you can be out and leading a civic life, if you will, meeting Mm -hmm. other people, brushing shoulders, meeting entrepreneurs. And I think that's a big part of our mission. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, I've had plenty of bad markets, and I think markets that have failed. And I think that that's something that currently a lot of operators jumping in don't have the experience of knowing that these markets just don't work everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know they go bad, they go bad fast because you don't have a national tenant who's signed a 10-year lease. Right. You've got a local guy and they're, they're leaving. The second, they're not making money, they're walking out the door. Mm-hmm. So this does not work everywhere. and I think a good 50% of what's being planned right now won't last in the long run. Really.
0: So so there is no long ramp up if this these don't come
1: out of the gate working, they have a what is it a 90 day window before no. people say, you know it takes it takes a good year mm-hmm. because everyone's got great intentions and they're working hard. But you know a lot of we, we we've worked with um, a group that 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 works with small businesses and they've done surveys. A lot of these small businesses don't even know if they're profitable. They don't have the books, the bookkeeping uh-huh. or they're not on top enough of what's going on. So it may take them a year to realize that this isn't working for them.
0: Really, that's amazing. I would think if they're not profitable, they're writing a check to cover it, you would think they would be aware to, where, unless they have capital with another... Uh,
1: they're living day to day, and they're as long as they're, they're able to pay a bill, they're hoping they're for okay. the, the sales will increase.
0: Hmm. So, so, a new market opens up, and it's more or less got a year to catch on or else. So, what happens? Vendors start to leave. When do you make the decision, hey, this isn't working, we're going to pull the plug? When the vendors leave. <laughs> <laughs> so, it becomes an easy... It's an easy easy decision. at that
1: point. Yeah. Right.
0: And how often does that happen? What What's your success rate like?
1: You know, early on, I'd say two thirds were successful. Two thirds were successful. Okay. Now we're, but we're, even
0: still, a third failing is a pretty. Uh, that's a pretty big number. Yeah. And now much less
1: because now we're much more cautious.
0: You're more cautious, or are you just more experienced in knowing what works and what doesn't, or some combination.
1: Experienced and cautious. Mm-hmm. We you know we get inquiries almost daily. And we say no, no 90% of the time. From the
0: space or from the vendors or who's who's making the inquiries? Um, landlords. Hey, we'd love to set up an urban space here. <laughs> yeah. And it, so I look at a place like Vanderbilt. That's got to be a fairly long-term lease, I assume, mm-hmm. right? This isn't a pop-up. This is there for a while. Um, you have lots of other spaces that people approach you about like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, there's a retail is soft there's a lot of people looking for for tenants um we're ton,
0: ton of empty storefronts even even manhattan which is robust and thriving lots of lots of empty spaces
1: yeah and there's going to be a little bit of price adjustment you know rents will adjust a little bit there's, there'll Down. be other downward i you know i think that uh, i talked to a lot of people i think there'll be other tenants backfilling those spaces but mm-hmm. clearly it's a it's a great market to be in if you have a A concept that's making money right now. Right. And um, so,
0: how many more urban space type food halls can Manhattan support? Are you
1: going to open? We're opening, definitely opening more in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You know, we think our trade area is fairly fairly tight.
0: So, I'm going to guess you're sticking to Midtown and downtown by the financial district and maybe. Hudson Yards, is that a... Yeah, we're looking at those places. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And others, I would assume. Yeah. So is it driven more by the office worker, or is it driven by... Uh, I look at the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side. Uh, you have a lot of residences and not as many offices. Can can an urban space work in an area like that, or do you need the crush of that lunchtime rush?
1: There's a, a lot of different customer bases so it could it can be residential it can be tourism it can be office huh. obviously there's different patterns to each one of those
0: sure so tell us what you do outside of the office for fun when you're not thinking about architecture and urban planning
1: what do you do to relax or kick back i do a lot of ski trips with my kids mm-hmm. and uh, we, we do a lot of stuff together as a family so we're skiing we're playing tennis we're hiking i'm doing uh, tuckerman's ravine uh, next month
0: where's where tuckerman's mount ravine? washington Oh, so
1: that's a uh, that's a serious well um, for the East Coast.
0: <laughs> what advice would you give to a recent college graduate or a millennial who was considering working in retail, architecture, or urban planning, or any of the sort of work that you do, uh, and they were looking for uh, a little guidance? What would you tell them?
1: Definitely, just jump in. You mm-hmm. know, get a job, get some experience. Um, and start, start doing it. I, I think that you need the experience. I think if you tried to start, for example, a food brand too early without knowing all the ins and outs, it, it could be difficult. On the other hand, if your capital outlay isn't that high, uh, you'll gain experience by doing it, even if the first one doesn't work.
0: Huh. And our final question, what do you know about urban planning, restructuring, holiday fairs, food halls? Today that you wish you knew twenty plus years ago when you were first getting started.
1: What I would know, have been helpful twenty years ago to know
0: that today you just take for granted?
1: I think what is easier today probably didn't exist twenty years ago, which is, you know, access to landlords and capital. But that's that's just shifted.
0: Mm-hmm. So t- I know
1: more about capital markets and real estate than than I did when I started, but it was it was it was tougher to find spaces twenty five years ago. Huh.
0: That, that, that's quite interesting.
1: We have been speaking with Eldon Scott
0: of Urban Space. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold, and you could see any of our other 200-plus such conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIBPodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put together the podcast each week. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Taylor Riggs is my booker producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.